Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. My guest today is a Canadian musician, author, and inspirational speaker. He began his career in 1981 singing and playing guitar with Coney Hatch opening for the likes of Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and Ted Nugent. And then he went on to author a book called Strange Way to Live, which details the near-fatal car accident he suffered in 2008. Uh, Since then, he's released a number of records, including a brand-new country record called Whole Nother Thing. Please welcome to the show one of Canada's most respected musicians, Mr. Carl Dixon. Carl, I'm very excited to have you The crowd goes wild. (laughs) (laughs) We'll put that in the edit. (laughs) Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to have you. I'm a big Coney Hatch fan. I was saying earlier that I was listening to the first record on the way down. Devil's Deck got a couple of repeats. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> that was uh, the second song we ever worked on together. Oh, really? I, yeah. So that was yours, I think, right? Actually, it, the guitar intros were mine and some of the lyrics, but that was actually a, the lyrics uh, Andy wrote okay. about a girlfriend he was mad at who'd, been, who'd misbehaved herself very badly. Really? That's, well, that's one of the things I've started to joke about and realize as I go along in life. Uh, in rock songs, so often rock songs are written because the singer was mad at his girlfriend. <laughs> it's not fair. The girls have no answering platform. <laughs> so was her name actually Christine? Yes. As- Oh, yeah, because that's that's the opening I line, think, right? I think. Christine, just a girl of 16. You know, uh, I think probably the name was changed to protect the innocent that or the guilty, sense. as the that case may sense. be. That would be probably the wise thing to do, <laughs> considering the, the lyrical content. Yeah, it was not complimentary. She only knows one dance. <laughs> <laughs> it was the twist. <laughs> <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> awesome! I love that record. Monkey Bars obviously is on there too. Hey, yeah. operator, yeah. That 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 record was uh, it was like uh, a bull at a gate, as they say in Australia, where I've spent a lot of time. They uh, we it was like we exploded out of the uh, the prep work we'd been doing individually for years and together for a year or so. At that point, I joined in February of eighty one. Yeah, and right away we were writing songs together and getting up. Early in the morning after playing in bars in Quebec and on Northern Ontario and Southern Ontario, yeah. we play till one or two in the morning, then get up the next morning before the bar opened and rehearse new songs together. Wow. And that's how we developed that first album. Uh, there were a number of songs that they already had in place when I joined. Mm-hmm. Uh, I replaced a singer who was in the band from maybe a year or less before I was part of it. Okay. And when I went to see them with that singer, I heard these songs they had and I thought, wow, those are the strangest songs I've ever heard. But they're writing songs, and that's you know, a mark in their favor of bands I, I would like to join, because that's yeah. what I, I knew. You had to write songs to get anywhere. Yeah. You're never going to get out of the bars playing ACDC, no matter how well you play Exactly. It. So uh, that was how, where we started. None of those songs made it to an album, except for Monkey Bars. That was the only one they had before I joined. No way. Yeah, all the others fell by the wayside. Oh, wow. Uh, we wrote all new stuff once I joined, and within... Th- Three months, I think it was, of me joining. We had our first ever gig at the Gasworks. Okay. And Pai Dubois, who was the lyricist for Kim Mitchell yeah. and the Max Webster albums, yeah. came out to see us. And Andy went and pinned a Coney. We recognized him from the yeah. album cover photos that you used to get in the inner sleeve. Uh, <laughs> yes, they put does. a photo of Pai in one of those Max Webster albums. So Andy went and pinned a Coney Hatch button on him. And he said, he said at the end of the first set, wow, you guys are really good. I think Kim would like this. Kim had quit Max Webster at that point just yeah. recently, and he was looking for something to do. So Pi told Kim about it, uh, I think, later that same week. They came out together to see us, and 
Kim got excited and he said, let's, let's do some demos together. I'll help you guys do some pre-production. And that's how the whole thing started with uh, Kim. Oh, actually, you know what? He didn't say it quite then. He came out and saw us. Now I'm rec- reconstructing events. We had to go on the next week to northern uh, Quebec, okay. to Chicoutimi. Okay. There was a place we used to play there regularly called Le Mascador. The, the French owner there, uh, he would talk about other bands, and he would say, oh, they're good, but they're not the Cognacs. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was a favorite place for us, and we, we got a call from our manager at that point, a guy called Bruce Wilson, who, who called us after the set at 2 in the morning to tell us, Kim Mitchell called tonight and he wants to work with us. And I still have a notebook that I was keeping at that point where the scrawl is six inches big each yeah. word, you know. Kim Mitchell wants to work with us. It's unbelievable. That's awesome. And you still uh, have that book. That's so cool. Yeah, we were we were very excited. And when we got home the next time, uh, I think we were away for two or three weeks. So when we did get home, he met us in a rehearsal room over on Eglinton West somewhere. Went through our songs with us and told us, okay, this intro's too long. Mm-hmm. You probably want to get to the chorus sooner. That kind of producer touch stuff. Yeah. And we went and recorded our first demos, and he circulated them, uh, took them around to a few labels. It wasn't straight to Anthem Records, which mm-hmm. was his label at the time. It, they were among several okay. that uh, he went to, because I guess he wanted to get the best deal he could for us. Yeah. Ultimately, Anthem proved to be the most interested. That's great. Fantastic. Long answer to a short question. I can't no, even remember what the question was. It's so interesting. <laughs> I don't. I can't either. But I'm glad you provided that detail. That's so cool. It was. Uh, you know, we owe him a lot. Who knows how things would have gone for us if he hadn't come along at that time? Yeah. But it was our interests coinciding at the right time. He played on a couple of those tunes. Everyone thinks that. Oh, he didn't. Didn't. Really? That's interesting. The big play, the song that everybody thinks he played was the solo on Monkey Bars. And uh, he actually, that came about because he said to Steve, he used to play something different, Steve Shelsky, our guitar yeah, player. Yeah. And we went to record it, and Kim said, you know, this is such an oddball th- song. It needs something really unusual for the solo. Throw, a, throw in the most unusual thing you can think of, Steve. Yeah. And because it was so angular and, and, and weird, the way Kim often played solos in Max Webster records, everybody thought it was him. But yeah. it was actually Steve, who'd been to the jazz course at Humber College. Yes. It was a Charlie Parker piece called Donna Lee. And, oh. and, and it was almost, if I remember correctly, it was almost like, okay, I'm going to try this for a joke and see if Kim goes for it. And he no. played it and Kim went, that's it. That is <laughs> that's the solo. That's a great story. I love that. Yeah. So ever since then, because it was so weird, people thought it was Kim that played that part. Well, it, yeah, it just, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with jazz, I mean, it yeah. almost sounds like it's being played in reverse in some pieces. Right? <laughs> or the tape flipped over. Yeah. Yeah. But I know. It's, it's, it's it really is cool. weird. Um, and especially since it's it doesn't seem to fit with any key uh, yeah. of the uh, of whether the song's in A or E or H, you know, it just kind of, <laughs> it just kind of uh, has its own little world that it inhabits in the middle of that song, and yet it totally works. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that is fantastic. Um, okay, so following Coney Hatch, you were singing with Guess Who? Well, after many adventures and misadventures in between, yeah, yeah. It, it it the first run with Coney Hatch where we were going for it yep. came to an end at eight, end of eighty five. Yeah. Uh, we had some reunion dates in the years after that while Andy and I were both getting on our own solo paths. Mm-hmm. And 97 was when I got the call from the Guess Who. Okay. From the keyboard player that was with them at the time. Most people know at this point, because Burton won't stop griping about it, that mm-hmm. uh, the Guess Who carried on without him. Yeah. 
and so the keyboard player that was filling in with uh, with the guess who not filling in he had a steady job for years still he's still with them as a matter of fact he called me because we'd worked together in Toronto on a few things and in fact our relationship went back to Coney Hatch this guy a keyboard player had a cube van yeah. with a sleeper in it that we used to rent to go on our tours for Coney Hatch with Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and oh, bands wow. like that so that's how we got to know each other and then we worked on some songwriting years later and then a number of years after that he called and said Carl what are you doing our singer's quitting and we need somebody and I think you're the guy for the job. Awesome. So they sent me uh, recordings, the instrumental tracks from their live show and said, can you go to a studio and overdub your singing on the live tracks and we'll see if how it fits. Mm -hmm. Well, I heard later from their drummer, Gary Peterson, that they thought it was Burton playing a joke on them because it sounded so so close to the the recordings, the the Guess Who style. So I was in, as as that story would indicate. Yeah. That's great. So I had a couple of different uh, stints with them. Okay. The first one uh, starting at the end of 97 was when uh, I went and met with them and we agreed I'd do the job. That went up to the Guess Who reunion of 2000. Okay. And in fact, we were playing shows right up to the start of rehearsals where Burton and Randy got back together with Gary Peterson and Jim Cale, who yeah. had the, the band going and they owned the name. Yeah. Yes, it was funny because that came up, that Guess Who experience, they had the Pan Am Games in Winnipeg in 99, okay. it was. So the guys said, look, we, 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 they were paid a quarter million by the city of Winnipeg to do four songs for mm-hmm. the closing ceremonies. And they all said, well, we can't turn down this money. Even if we hate each other, we, we should take the money. <laughs> <laughs> and so the guys said, look, just take a week off. We're going to rehearse a few days, then do the show, and then we'll, we'll meet you in Arkansas and the week after that, wherever we were playing. you know." Yeah. And so I was sitting at home watching the guess who which I was ostensibly the singer of, <laughs> playing on TV with, with Burton appearing in the role of Carl Dixon. And uh, so I watched them, and you know Burton had been doing, at that time, period in time, he was doing solo things, corporate events with yeah. just him and his piano. And Randy had, he was on a, sort of on a club level because he'd, he'd, he'd junked BTO long before that. Yeah. And you could see... Actually, Jim Cale and Gary Peterson were more used to the big stage, the big show thing. Yeah. And I could just see it on television at home. Randy and Burton getting that rock star, yeah. big crowd, stadium, this feels good. Yeah. I could just see. And, and I turned to the people I was watching with and I said, I have a feeling they're going to want to keep doing this. I yeah. probably am not going to be the singer of the Guess Who a lot longer. Mm. So, uh, uh, as was the case a year later, they did the uh, the reunion. They began the reunion. Yeah. And you know what? I was such a fan of the band. It was the first record I ever bought when I was a boy. It was a, a Guess Who forty five. It yeah. was the first big concert I'd ever seen at the Exhibition Stadium here in Toronto. Oh, really? Was the Guess Who when they were uh, Glamour Boy was the hit that summer. Okay. I was twelve or thirteen, and and I went to see them. My first big concert. Wow. And years later, I ended up in the band, That's right, amazing. as the singer. Yeah. So. Uh, I was such a fan of the band. I said, "Fair enough. I'd love to see you guys back together. I'll I'll stay home so Burton can take his chair back." Good for you. And so I got to work on my I guess it was my second or third solo album at that time. And in the meantime, April Wine came calling. Yes. And said, "Carl, uh, we need we need somebody to join the band to fill out the sound." Yeah. Because we they were just finishing a new album called Back to the Mansion that they'd spent years preparing. So that was the reason I ended up in April Wine. I was at Loose Ends just finishing my solo album, and they needed somebody who could sing all the high harmonies, add acoustic guitar, add another electric guitar when needed, play percussion, play keyboards. I could do all those things. Perfect. So 
I was the fifth piece in the April Wine touring band for about four years, and we did a, a live album together, April Wine Greatest Hits Live. And so I like to joke, they stuck me in the back row where they keep the drummer. <laughs> I, had a little, I had a riser next to Jerry Mercer with my keyboard set up and my guitar set up. And, oh, and really? so I'd be there singing all the high harmonies and doing all that stuff to fill out the sound. And, and I prided myself on learning the parts that the four guys had just kind of, kind of decided we can't cover that live. So I found all those parts that they weren't doing and I added oh. those in. And that was, that was kind of fun. I, I learned a lot from those guys and they treated me very well and you know it was a, an, another great opportunity to be part of a classic repertoire yes. of Canadian hit music Absolutely. they had so many hits they couldn't play them all in one night so that yeah. that was a really neat experience that's great you're like the April Wine Swiss Army Knife <laughs> <laughs> yeah I guess I was the utility guy in that man Doing every once in a while I'd I, you know if we really got rocking I'd jump down and join the big boys in the front row and <laughs> put my big pants on and then uh, just as that was winding down, because they, they started to realize they couldn't actually afford to have me in the band after huh. about four years. So just at that point, the, the Guess Who reunion was falling apart. Mm -hmm. And Jim and Gary called me back and said, can you come back? We don't think it's going to work with Burton. We, he doesn't want to go to work. Mm -hmm. Burton can stay in bed for years if he wants to and not go to work, and it won't hurt him financially. Yeah, the other guys were going to lose their homes if they didn't keep going to work every week. Mm -hmm. So... They called me, uh, can, we got to get back on the road, will you do it? And I said, yeah, okay. So that we picked up again, and I was another four years at that before, wow. well, almost five years, I guess, before it all fell apart in one stunning moment in Australia. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible story. Now, you are now an inspirational speaker, and your story is literally miraculous. So Strange Way to Live does detail that car accident back in, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it was 2008 in Australia, yes. correct? Just had the 10th anniversary of it. Yeah, amazing. Yes. It, I was in a fair state of emotional distress. My family was falling apart, and I didn't know why. Okay. Um, my daughter was starring in a TV show down there. I just came from breakfast with her, actually. Uh, and, you know, all's well that ends well in that regard. Oh, great. My, my little girl and I are very much on the same page again. She hear. got a, a starring role at the age of 11 to go to the other end of the world. Oh. And be in a TV series. the The original deal was for two seasons of a show plus a movie, okay, wow. which would have meant two years of living in Australia. So the family was split up, and I was still touring with the Guess Who, mm -hmm. and things were not going well on the family front, and I didn't know why. Yeah, and I went down there to kind of I, the Guess Who agreed to give me two weeks off so I could go sort things out. Okay, so I flew in with the mission of. I'm going to remind these guys I love them and, you know, we're a family and, you know, whatever's, whatever's crazy going on, we can work this out. Come on, guys, it'll be fine. Yeah. And I realized again, uh, something's not right here. And I was in such distress coming home from uh, working on music for the kids' TV show. Mm -hmm. I forgot they drive on the other side of the road in oh, Australia. Yeah. Lesson to us all, folks. You go to another country, be where you are. Remember okay. the environment you're inhabiting. It was evening, wasn't it? It was dark as well. It was after dark, a little two-lane country road. I'd gotten off the freeway, and, you know, you, you cruise along mindlessly on a freeway. You know, we've all had that experience where you drive along 10 miles, oh, and wow. you realize, I haven't been paying attention yeah. at all. I've been off in my own thoughts. Yeah. But when you're in your home country, unless something unexpected happens, you can get away with that. Yes. You're in another country where they drive on the other side of the road, you can't get away with that. Yeah. I lasted maybe one minute. 
driving on the wrong side of the road because I forgot I wasn't in Canada. Yeah. And some guy coming home from work in the other direction. We were both going 100 kilometers an hour, head-on collision. You were in a small rental car. I was in a small rental car. And he was in a big uh, Land Cruiser. Yeah. Oh, God. Came right up the hood of my car over top of my head, crushed everything on top of me. And uh, it was bad. Very, very bad. I was myrtleized. Carl, that is unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, the, the inspirational speaking I do, I touch on this because... People are interested in the the rise and fall and rise kind of stories. Absolutely. And the term I came up with after talking about it a number of times, and I always joke, this is it's actually my therapy getting out and talking to these audiences about mm-hmm. what happened. I came up with the term I was emotionally impaired. Okay. You know, there's all kinds of impairments we talk about now. You haven't heard that one before, but it's a factor. Mm-hmm. I was so emotionally distressed that I wasn't present in the moment. Yeah. In my body, in my car. In that country, I was in another planet of, oh, my God, oh, my God, what's going to happen? You know, this is terrible. What do I do? What do I do? And everything's going wrong. So I was not present in my surroundings. And that's what enabled me. That's what caused me to be in this terrible crash. I had something like 50 injuries in the space of two seconds of impact. And because he, he came up the hood, over the roof of the car and kept going. Oh, wow. And uh, you can see this arm here. That's the evidence that I just yeah. had time to get my arm. In fr- I still have all my teeth. But this side of my head got crushed and oh. and both my legs badly broken. Internal injuries like crazy. Ripped to shreds. Cut to, pe- cut to ribbons. I had a spinal fracture. A massive head injury. And they, th- they thought if I lived through the night, which, you know, there was so much blood loss. If I lived through the night, I was likely to have brain damage. Could be a quadriplegic. Sure. Uh, they were going to amputate my arm and my leg. They were just hanging by fragments. Wow. Uh, this arm was almost severed just from the gashes from the uh, oh yeah the glass and the metal going over me because my arm got dragged behind me as the car went over. Oh my goodness. So uh, it was very very bad. Thirty eight hours or so of surgery in two different shifts. They, wow. They put on me and I was in a coma for ten days. Yeah. And when I came to, I had no idea where I was or what had happened. And still to this day, no memory of the crash at all. Oh but people on the scene told me that I was, I was still retaining enough consciousness, even though ripped to pieces, to say, please, please, you have to help me. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And they asked me my name, and I told them my name, what day it was. I knew that. I have no memory of any of this. They said I was self-splinting. This arm was hanging, you know, just dangling. And I was yeah. holding it and gushing blood everywhere. And they they said I was still conscious enough to answer their questions. Yeah. And so then they stabilized me. And within minutes, the next car that came along on the scene after a couple of... There was a nurse yeah. that was one of the first people. And then the next guy that came along was the captain of the local emergency rescue force, the volunteer force. Wow. And his daughter in the car was just graduating from paramedic school. Who better than... Unbelievable, right? you know. That's I like to joke that I had a whole squadron of angels watching over Seriously. me that night. Uh, so that's they called point. in the the troops and they they started getting plasma going through me as fast as it was running out. They were putting more in, and Good. and the the little daughter got in the back seat and held my head still because it was clear that I was lolling from the neck fracture. And it's it's astonishing that you were able to maintain any level of lucidity whatsoever. Uh, yeah, it's it's just I can't even ex- account for it. The only explanation I can offer, aside from 
sheer stubbornness, <laughs> I suppose, which is a large part of a character, and determination, is, uh, you know, the doctors that treated me in Australia, mm-hmm. they said to me when I was conscious enough to speak and answer questions a few weeks later, they said, the, the only reason you lived, even through that first night, probably, I, I had taken care of myself my whole life. Yeah. I'd always stayed fit and strong. I'd, I'd been a track and field runner. I, play, I was playing ice hockey three times a week at the, just prior to going on the, the trip to Australia still. Okay. And doing push-ups and swimming and all that stuff. And I never touched drugs in my whole life. Not once. Hmm. Never smoked a cigarette. Not one. Really? Hardly drank. Oh, wow. I didn't you know? know that about you. Wow. So it was, I was absolutely in the peak. If I was going to have a crisis visited on me, my body was in the pink to cope as well as it possibly, possibly could. could. Wow. With the cardio, and the singing actually is a cardiovascular benefit. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing that my whole life. So yeah. they said, that's the only reason you lived was the fitness and the good state you kept your body in. Wow. So perhaps that aided me being able to communicate uh, a little in those first crisis moments as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, Strange Way to Live, fantastic book, details that entire piece of your life. Yes, well, there are some laughs in it, too. And you know, oh, yeah, you got to have a yeah, balance. Yeah. Life is a balance, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I kind of went in chronological order, mostly in, in, in the book telling. What I came to, it, it, I recommend in the forward to my book that everyone write their own book. Yeah. Because, man, is it a great way to get a bird's eye view of your own life. Mm-hmm. And see a big picture of how how we got to here. What, yeah. This led to that. Oh, and inevitably, that choice meant you didn't take this choice. And, you know, the, the pattern, yes, the pattern you see emerge when you look back on it in that form. Rather than as we go through day-to-day existence, we just sort of have a, a vague memory of, of the, uh, the events yeah. of our lives. But when you really take the trouble to write your story and piece it all together man it's it's instructive and clar- clarifying absolutely incredible so uh coney hatch back out on the road in november opening up for steve harris's british yes line. isn't that a an unlikely unexpected turn of events so how did that come together well we had a wonderful we, we did a few big tours back in the old days with coney hatch the the second one we did was with Iron Maiden when they were just hitting their stride as a headlining act, the Peace of Mind tour in 83. Yeah. And we did about 40 shows with them that year. Okay. Uh, We started in the States, worked our way over to the East Coast, back through Canada to the West, then down into the Western States. So we had a long time with them and befriended them, and we became fans of each other's bands. Uh, Of course, they were much more successful and long-lasting than we were. But, you know, friendships, real friendships uh, endure. And Andy in particular became very close with, uh, Andy Kern became close with Steve Harris. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, they always had good wishes for us when they came through town, and I visited a couple of times. Nice. Anyway, last time Iron Maiden was through Toronto, Andy went down to see Steve Harris, and, and he had his British Lion thing going by then. And he said, you know, Andy, I've got his solo band, British Lion, yeah. Re- really love to come to Canada do some dates what if Coney gets out we do some shows together fantastic and we hadn't played a show well this year will be four years since our last Coney Hat shows yeah. so when this came about we hadn't played in three years and wasn't sure what, we weren't sure if we'd ever get an offer again because we were off in various directions and 
And the interest had lagged a bit in mm-hmm. Coney Hatch with no current hit records, and we didn't really have any label or management or agent representation. All we had was uh, oldies play on the radio, and you know, yeah. even that was lagging a bit. Q107 decided we were we didn't get a high enough listener interest, so they dropped us from their playlists. And Don't even get me started on Q107. Uh, well, there's so many things that... You know, it's all advertising, revenue-driven, the choices that radio stations make these days. Yeah. Remember how the hippies used to warn us about the cor- creeping corporatization <laughs> of music? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it is upon us, folks, and we, has been for a while. We talked about that for hours. Yeah. Right? So anyway, the, this opportunity, this idea was born. So it took a while to convince agents to get on board with it. Mm-hmm. But once they did... The interest was certainly there. So now we've got five one-nighters back-to-back. November 1, Toronto. November 2, Kitchener. November 3, Ottawa. November 4, Quebec City. November 5, Montreal. Five one-nighters back-to-back. We haven't done a schedule like that since the 80s, probably, where we did five nights in a row. But prior to that even coming together, I'd gotten approached to go to a festival in Germany. Oh. Bring Coney Hatch to a festival in Germany, an indoor one, on December 1. Nice. So that came into place first. Then the British Lion Dates fell into place. Then fella down in uh, Niagara Falls, who runs the Seneca Theater, yep. called and said, could you bring Coney Hatch to the Seneca? Wow. Okay, sure. When, when, so that's in mid-November. Yeah. And then uh, I just we just got a, a call two days ago. Can you bring Coney Hatch out to Calgary? Oh, look at you. On, on October 25. So that'll actually end up being the first thing we do before the, the Steve Harris shows now. That's awesome. Yeah, so suddenly where there was nothing for years, I think, what's that, eight eight dates in the space yeah. of a month now. Yeah. There's a market. We were talking before the show. There's, you know, I have a buddy in Boston. His name is Tom Doyle. Loves Coney Hatch. Yes. And, you know, I, I always hear from people, are you bringing the show to the States? Can you yeah. come to California? Can yeah. you come to Florida? Well, the problem is we need a, a, a focused number of people yeah. in, in a community to ensure that there will be an attendance that's, uh, that makes a promoter want to go out on a limb. Exactly. Because it always takes a promoter who's willing to take the risk. Yes. Well, logistically, it's very difficult, right? Yeah. Costs are much higher than they used to be to go out on tour. And, yeah. You know, all, all the bands seem to make their money. It used to be you do a tour to promote your new record. Which made the money. And you could anticipate a successful tour would translate to significant record sales. You'd see something out of that. And now it's all merch sales. I, I know old school guys who don't even want to sell T-shirts because they think it goes against why they got into music. I like that, actually. You yeah. Know? I'm not a big believer in that. It's almost backwards now because the records yes. don't sell. It's all about the merch. And you see these bands going out and selling $60 t-shirts. Yeah. There's something mildly perverse about that. Yes. Me. Well, and of course, the t-shirts have to cost that much because the bands, when they get into their 50s and 60s, don't want to ride around in the back of a van and stay exactly. in cheap hotels anymore. <laughs> so the money has to come from somewhere to pay for their comfort. You know what you're paying for when you buy a $60 t-shirt. Exactly. Yes. And of course, it's all nostalgia now. We're all paying for the reviving those memories of when we were all young and had such a good time hearing this music. That's right. Or, you know, the band's case, playing the music. And, exactly. But I will say it's, it's, a, it's a different experience now to yeah. get together with my old friends and play our music together. In, in the case of Coney Hatch, I'll only speak for us, yeah. we play better now than we did then. Really? And it sounds mighty and strong and smart. Really? Back then, it was, you know, testosterone and power. And I I used, there were times when I was singing in in front of Coney Hatch that I felt like a tank commander. 
Oh, yes. Like, we yeah. had this rolling, unstoppable thing that we just flatten everybody out, out of our way. Here we come, you know? Yeah. Now it's more appreciating who we are together and the friendship and the skill we have. And, and looking back and thinking, wow, we did something pretty good back then. We were just kids. We didn't even know what we were doing. Yeah. And it was still pretty great that we can still stand up uh, and stand behind this music all these years later. Yeah. And feel see, good about it. There's a richness about that that I think kind of is conveyed to the audience as yes. well through that idea. Right? Yes. In genuine emotion yeah. and, and gratitude. Yes is what we convey when we get together now. Yes. So listeners, get out there and see these shows. I, w- <laughs> I will be there November 1st, guaranteed. Very good. Yes. That's awesome. Congratulations on that. Is Thank it, you. Is it, is it Shelsky and everybody? Is it the original lineup? We have Dave Ketchum on drums, yep. Andy Curran, bass and vocals, me on guitar and vocals. Steve won't be part of this. Okay. Unfortunately, his commitments and interests have led him in other directions, and that's my diplomatic face <laughs> coming over me right there. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> but we have a, a wonderful guitar player who has played a few shows with us in the past for the same reason, named yeah. Sean Kelly. Oh, I know Sean. Great guy. Yeah. Great guitar player. Sean and I have known each other. He His band Crash Kelly used yes. to open for me years ago yeah, on my solo that. shows. Yeah. And we became friends through that, and we've played together in many different situations yeah, over the, the years. Nice thing, I remember. Remember that? Yes, yeah. very much. And he... Uh, He's a wonderful guitar player, a great guy, and he's such a fan. He go he went and learned all the guitar parts perfectly because yeah. he wanted to have that experience of feeling like he was playing Coney Hatch right. Yeah, I and love that, that man, you, the, a guy that wants to do that for you, he's worth gold. He is uh, a believer, you know. Yes, he's true to the like he is a disciple yes you know so he grew up in north bay we had a great chat one day and he told me all about it you know he plays with learen now yep and he is just he's your guy yeah she's a sweetie i've known her for many years yeah she's fantastic yeah yeah that's awesome i didn't know kelly was playing with you guys he's the man now i'm gonna have to ask him starting on right wing (laughs) (laughs) that's great i love that i will definitely be there to see you guys play for sure congratulations thank you okay so uh, before we get on, I want to I want to talk to you about something, and I think I sent you a note when I saw this. This is actually really cool. So, how can I frame this? You were doing a show outdoors. It was the afternoon, and it was an acoustic gig. Mm-hmm. And so, this you did one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I, I have to touch on this because listeners need to know about this, and I hope sure. they find the YouTube clip. You're playing along, and you broke a string. Ah, so rather than flip your guitar rather than have a roadie change it stop the show you continued the show and while you were changing your string up there by yourself you sang acapella he ain't heavy he's my brother yes that's an amazing thing i thought that was fantastic well you you've heard the phrase necessity is the mother of invention yeah (laughs) i I learned to be very self-sufficient in the years that I wasn't part of a band and I was making my own way. I have done this all my life, this performing, singing, entertainer kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And such a pathway is filled with peaks and valleys. You don't always have roadies. You don't always have backup. There have been many situations where it's just me by myself in some strange town. And I had to figure out a way to keep the show going when something went wrong. Yeah. And I always loved that song. And I'll tell you where, where uh, this, this idea got its birth. Okay. I saw David Wilcox one time okay. out in Vancouver. We were, we were with Coney Hatch on our 
last album, Friction, we were touring out there. We had a night off. I went out to see David, David Wilcox. I think it was a bar called The Town Pump. Okay. Yes. And he had his trio then. So he did something similar, but okay. his band played behind him. Uh, so they kept a groove going. And he told, us, he told a story while he changed his string mm-hmm. about going to divorce court. And the judge, <laughs> and I said, and the judge said... But he had the band backing him up with the music while he changed the string. Hmm. And I thought, that's very clever. I filed that. And years later when I was doing my acoustic thing and I broke a string. Because, you know, you lose people's interest if you break the show, if you break the spell. Exactly. So I thought, how do I keep keep this alive? And that that memory popped to the front and I said, I'm going to try something here. So I got out the string I needed, started singing the song, and I found I can do this. So I just kept going, and by the end of the song, I had the string tuned and, and you uh, ready to go I, without a break. You just morphed right back. It's so smooth. That's what's amazing about it. It's just, you know, it was it was almost as though you'd done it a million times. It's so a brain just, split, yeah. really, because you're you're doing this technical skill at the same time as you're tapping into the the singing voice and putting some emotion into it as well. Well, that's the thing. It wasn't yes. just a. F- kind of a flat rendering of like uh, I'm in trouble here you know? <laughs> it was great it, you just you, it was effortless it was really impressive to watch oh that's cool yeah. I'm, I'm glad you saw that because yes I, I actually there are people now who yell come on break a string so we can see that song <laughs> <laughs> I believe it oh yeah well you know that's the mark of a true artist and a true entertainer I think right especially in these times Oh, I, I tell you, the entertainer part of it, when I finally realized, because when I was, even in the Coney Hatch days, the success we had, I was so worried about being perfect. Mm-hmm. Could never make a mistake or I'd screw it up for all of us. Mm. You know, if I, if I don't hit that note, we're dead kind of thing. <laughs> it was such pressure to put on yourself. And I'd break down sobbing sometimes if I felt I'd let the band down when oh, we got wow. into the dressing room after, because especially as young as we were, and I didn't. I didn't really know what I was doing as a singer back then. I had a natural voice, but I didn't know the things I know now about right. technique and singing for hours and not tiring out and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, I was we and we kept pushing ourselves harder and harder and higher and higher singing yep. each album. And then I realized at some point when I'd stepped back from Coney Hatch and I started to learn more lessons, and that was really what I what I stepped away from. I I just don't know enough. I need to learn what this is really about. I kept, I remember having this feeling walking around, there's something, with a question mark over my head almost, there's something about all this I just don't get. So <laughs> I learned all the lessons the hard way and did all the, this, the hard yards and what I finally broke through, the thought I'm getting to is make it about them. Mm-hmm. If I'm not having fun and I'm so uptight, mm-hmm. audience isn't having any fun. That's right. It's up to me to set the tone. Exactly. And once I made that, flip that switch of it's about them. It's not about me. Mm-hmm. Everything got better after that. And at what point did, did that occur to you? Sometime in the late 80s, okay. probably. Post Coney Hatch. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I wanted to communicate something with Coney Hatch, but I still felt I, was, I had so much focus on me. I have to get this right, and once I get this right, then we'll have fun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't quite work like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Carl, we uh, should get into your songs here. Sure. Uh, so you've got a great list. I love it. Your first one is by Grand Funk Railroad. And it's <laughs> Aimless Lady from 1970. I got that record, that album, uh, when, I was, when I was a kid. I, I was a precocious 
hard rock listener, I guess, at an early age. Okay. I just love that feeling of power and life and 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 Grand Funk Railroad in particular. They had sort of a blend of the edginess of blues rock, but they they were from uh, Michigan and they had some. They had played a lot of soul and Motown in their mm-hmm. beginning years and. So they had a, a great blend of the singing harmonies and the swing of some of that music yes. blended in with Bunk. kick-ass rock. Yeah. And I've become friends with those guys, uh, the Don and Mel. Okay. They've kept the band going without Mark Farner. And I played a number of shows with them over oh, wow. the years. And they're great guys. Yeah. And I just, uh, Don Brewer on the drums still to this day, I said to him, Don, you're like an Olympic athlete. The yeah. focus you bring to every stroke of the drumstick. You can just see it's so strong. Even at, he's 70, I guess now, or close to it, every, you can just see him watching the hand, every stroke, it's so strong and focused and powerful, just driving that music, and uh, sings great still, and Mel with that, (laughs) that power bass he had. Anyway, Aimless Lady, it just, it caught, that whole Closer to Home record, Um, in fact, you know, the best known song from it, Closer to Home, I'm Getting Closer to My Home, Mm -hmm. uh, was not actually my favorite song on the record. Oh, really? It's the closing track of Side 2, but all Side 1 just killed me. Yeah. So great. Yeah. And this was the second song on the record, and so it just makes me makes me want to jump up and dance when yeah. I hear this. I get so excited. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, in the sound check once when I was, we, the Guess Who was playing with Grand Funk, and I saw Don and Mel walking in, and I started playing it and singing it, and they freaked out. They said, you're great. playing Aimless Lady! Oh, man! <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I forgot to mention you brought your guitar in. Ah, so uh, you are absolutely uh, welcome to grab it at any point. And uh, all right, well, uh, uh, are we doing the Let's, listed songs talk, or we'll, we'll we'll go through the tunes? Okay, yeah, um, I'll play something at some point before we give over. Perfect. Okay. Uh, next song is Foo Fighters. Learn to fly. Ah, you know, they, there's a sociological study that most people don't listen to music anymore after they're 30. They don't care about music anymore after that. All they care about is the music of their youth. I can see that. After that. By and large. I mean, there are always exceptions, but the majority. I also remember something Ian Hunter once said in the 80s when he was already considered a... a, Ian Hunter from Mata Hoople, etc. He was already considered a a grand old man of the music scene at that time. And they Mm -hmm. asked him, well, what's your opinion of the state of music today? And he said, you know what? Same as it's always been and always will be. 10% 10% is brilliant, 90% is rubbish. Hmm. Even if I don't like what's currently going on, if you listen, you can always find something that's quality, that has truth, that has meaning. Yes. That song, uh, Foo Fighters Learn to Fly, just struck me as that is so pure, so positive, mm-hmm. so uplifting, yeah. with the guts of a rock song attached to it as well. Yeah. And it just it just felt strong to me. And, and that I guess that's a virtue that I... I uh, moves me a lot is when I hear the strength and conviction that somebody puts into something. You can hear it yep. in the singing and playing and the words of a song. Certainly. Dave and I have very cherished memories of that too. When there was a period of time where I was taking my daughter to skating lessons when she was growing up at, okay. at Leeside Arena. Yeah. First, you know how playlists seem to have the, locked in at the same time. Every week we'd go to drop to the skating lessons and that song would be playing on the radio oh, and wow. it became a favorite of both of us. Yeah. Anyway, so I have that emotional attachment to it as well. But yeah, it just stuck out a mile to me of, of everything that was going on at that time. Yeah. Now, Dave Grohl is, is definitely uh, a disciple as well, for mm-hmm. sure. And uh, he's done a lot. I, I don't know if you've ever seen any of his documentaries. Um, 
just clips here and there. But yeah. Yeah, he's, he's obviously uh, a believer and... Oh, yeah. Right down to his roots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right down to his toes. He he is a disciple of the, the power of the music. Certainly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next tune, Jethro Tull, Skating Away. <laughs> now, this is, I think, music that was left over from Thick as a Brick, I think. Well, it was on the War Child album. Yeah. And War Child... I was a huge Jethro Tull fan up until War Child. After that, they started to lose me a bit. Yeah. But from Aqualung to there, actually from even Benefit to okay. there, I was sticking with Jethro Tull and thinking, this is the cleverest shit I've ever heard. This, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's funny because uh, Richie Blackmore was talking about in an interview once, you know, I said to Ian Anderson, that incredibly complicated music that they play, and I said, mm-hmm. how do you keep track of it all? And Ian Anderson claimed, oh, I don't know, I'll just count to four and away we go. I don't believe that. <laughs> but but there was such intelligence and yeah. craft and arrangement sense of the different instruments he'd mixed together yeah. and uh, the way a song would build. And this song has so many neat elements of the of the tabla drums and the uh, the squeeze box accordion yeah. introduced through it and it and the words skating away hey yeah. skating away hey skating away hey on the thin ice of the new day yeah. I used to do a mean Ian Anderson imitation at one time. I still <laughs> okay. play locomotive breath for fun sometimes. Oh really? Yeah. On, the, on the acoustic, yeah. That's a great tune. <laughs> but yeah, that that song just makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah, it's and this is is it 75? That's about right. Around yep. that time? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, because this came out after Thick as a Brick. I think Aqualung was before it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great tune. Uh, next, I like this pick. This is Jumping Jack Flash, but it's a cover of the tune. It's by Johnny Winter, and it's live, I think, right? Live from the Johnny Winter and Live album. And Rick Derringer was his his guitar playing partner. Oh, on this? On this on the record and he produced the album as well. Oh, I didn't know that. So the two of them working together on guitar just so deadly. So much this is now. yeah. There, that whole Johnny Winter and Live album was a killer. Mm-hmm. Those those opening bars of uh, Bobby Caldwell playing the drums for Good Morning Little School Girl just yeah. slaughters you. Yeah. And then the end of side 1 this song comes in and uh Johnny with that roar and out, 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 out. Yeah. And the two guitars working together with the bass. I actually, words don't do it justice. Me mocking it up on the, on the vocal here doesn't do it justice. But man, it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Exactly. It's right. so exciting. There's so much energy. It's very exciting. There are so many covers of Jumpin' Jack Flash out there. This is the one. Yeah. And right down to the solo, he, yeah. he uses a Y, I think, and he's got like a flange in the second half of the song. Like it's ridiculously good. Yeah, and then he, you know, he and Rick Derringer trade solos yes. in different aspects, and and oh, I didn't man, know it, was it just though. kills. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, great pick. Uh, next, an obscure tune by John Fogarty. Oh. <laughs> this is uh, almost Saturday night. Yeah. That's a beautiful song. If you like Creed and stuff, this this was from John's uh, second solo album, which mm-hmm. was on Asylum Records. I think it was the opening track. It's it sounds like the best Creedence song that you never heard. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to describe it. Yeah, it's it's just got that joyous. We're in the country, but we're rocking, and that voice. Yeah. Jody's gone to the rodeo, and I hear that motor wagon getting ready to ride. Yeah. Cause it's almost Saturday night. 
the harmonies and the rhythm of it. And there's one part, I mean, this is a subtle musician thing, but there's a, one part the second time around the bridge, he goes to a minor chord. Okay. Instead of a major chord that he did the first time, and it just makes oh, it melts you because it's so sweet the, really? the change in it. Yeah, so I don't know the song. Oh, you'll you'll love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm gonna check it out. Uh, next up, Thin Lizzy, Fight or Fall. I know this one's it's from Jailbreak, I think, isn't it? Yeah, from yeah. Jailbreak. Thin Lizzy. Uh, I went mad for them for years. And, yeah. you know, Phil Phil Linet had that, the soul of the black man and the sentimentality of the Irishman. And yeah. and he re- he was a mixed marriage boy yep. who grew up with the legends of the clan war, uh, battles in Ireland and the chieftains and all that stuff. So that's where he got all the historical and warrior kind of songs that Scary he wrote. Uh, but then his, his softer sentimental side comes out in a song like this. And the se- it's that feeling, you know, it goes, brothers, fight or fall, man to man, one for all. And I'm choking up even as I say it out loud mm-hmm. because it's the feeling you get when you have, for instance, a band like Coney Hatch and the brothers we became. Yeah. Uh, that feeling you have that we know each other in a way that no one else will ever know us. Yeah. And we have this thing that we created that's between us. You change any one of us and it's not the same. And we have this bond and brothers, here I stand, you know? Yeah, that is a bloody thing. It, it just statement. makes me uh, very, very emotional when I hear that song. Yeah. That's As you say, something that moves you. Absolutely. It makes your skin vibrate. Yeah. Absolutely. Last song here, Status Quo, Whatever You Want. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of love for Status Quo in North America, I think, with their no. in the UK. No. No, and you know, they got their best notice in North America when they weren't really fully developed yet. Yeah. They, their early boogie band days, their songs weren't very good. Mm-hmm. And then they got to writing better songs in America and North America kind of say, eh, status quo, whatever. Yeah. But this song is just, it's got that bounce to it of a really classic rock shuffle mm-hmm. and great, I love the heart, tight harmony vocals they do together. And the the arrangement of it, where it comes in with that, and do, 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 it, it's it's a classic, a perfect rock song. Yeah, yeah. Once again, makes me feel good when I hear it. I just want to bounce around the room and sing along. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is the end of your list, my friend. Yeah. Well, uh, there are so many songs you could choose. Oh, As you said, it's probably hard to narrow them down. I, I had my own radio show for seven years oh, up in uh, in Halliburton called Carl Dixon's Rock Garden. Wow! And I, it got syndicated out to some stations across the country and and over in England, satellite radio and stuff like that. Okay. And so I had a huge folder of songs that I'd collected from that. And so when you asked me to put together a list, I thought I should just look in my Rock Garden folder and <laughs> and the ideas will pop out of me. And sure enough, that's these are all songs that uh, come from my Rock Garden. Oh, show. perfect! That's great. I mean, everything I included in there was because I felt something. And it, I have a folder of probably 1,200 songs on different CDs. Yeah. These are the ones that I guess when I first thought about it and the marriage of my history and what I like in music, these are the ones that shot to the top of the list it's on short notice. A great compendium, and you are welcome back anytime. I know you've got a lot more songs to talk about. So anytime <laughs> you want to come back, my friend. Thank you. Thank absolutely. You. Absolutely. Uh, should I do an acoustic song? Please or? do. Okay. Please, if you can. Let me see if I have a guitar pick with me. Yes, I do. Well, um, hmm. What would you like to play? You want to do something from the new record? Do you want to do yes, an oldie? I'll do something from the new record. This yeah. is a song that was the first single 
to country radio, and it did reasonably well for a guy who's never been at country radio before. Yeah. And I've just put out my, my second single from the album. It's coming out next week, so I have high hopes for that. Okay. This song is called Line Drive, and there's a really sweet video for it. Uh, my wife, Helen, was an Australia TV producer for years. Yeah. And uh, very good with the camera. and the, she, has, she takes photos of me that, that no one else can get that make me... Her eye always makes me look good in her photos. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny. No one else seems to make me look good in photos except her. <laughs> this song called Line Drive is... Uh, it's an idea that we all work so damn hard in the modern world and striving and trying to get things done and and set ourselves up and meet expectations and and so often we forget to be kind to ourselves and be mm-hmm. glad and just realize wow I did a lot and I was pretty good we're always are so often stuck in that I didn't do enough I should do more mm-hmm. wanting more needing more yeah. feeling like we haven't done all we could so this song is is addressing that thought and be good to yourself you know it's called Line Drive awesome I'm a big believer in tomorrow I can see a lot of things going right Another chance to set my world in order Well, I keep heading for the light Yesterday brought me another step closer To being the man that I'd like to be So when we settle in for dreaming At the end of the evening I promise this is what you'll see I'll go to sleep with a smile on my face Knowing I did the best that I could And if this day didn't all go my way Well, it was still pretty good Anybody keeping score at home You can tell them that I hit a line drive Maybe it didn't quite clear the fences But at least I kept the inning alive At least I kept the inning alive took only the strikeouts and the missed opportunities the story'd be too sad to tell when I look back on my life and the lessons it showed me this cowboy's doing pretty well I'm not saying it's easy getting up when you're knocked down and feeling like you're losing again But I remember a wise man told me You didn't lose You just ran out of time, my friend You'll do better when you try again And so I'll go to sleep with a smile on my face 
knowing I did the best that I could. And if this day didn't all go my way, well, it was still pretty good. If anybody's keeping score at home, you can tell them that I hit a line drive. Maybe it didn't quite clear the fences, but at least I kept the inning alive. At least I kept the inning alive. Kept the inning alive. Well done, my friend. Well done. Thank you, Ben. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. That was a privilege. My pleasure. What a nice thing to do. This is a great, uh, great idea you have here. Good. Well, come back anytime. <laughs> right. Seriously, and bring your guitar next time too. That was amazing. Thank so you. we can hear that on your new record. Whole nother thing. Yes. Right? And that's available. And my friend Andy Curran played the bass on it. Actually. Did he really? Yeah. Awesome. That's cool. Yeah. So a uh, whole other thing available on CarlDixon.com. Yep. And uh, through, it's uh, in stores at Sunrise Records and also on download through iTunes and available through all those digital platforms. And yeah, Spotify. Yes. Right. And if a million people listen to Spotify, I'll make that $100. <laughs> All right, and Coney Hatch in November opening up mm-hmm. for Steve Harris's British Lion, yes. November 1 in Toronto. Get to that, folks. It's going to be a great show. Carl, thank you so much for coming, and I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Carl Dixon. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.